Blades flash on the edge of the precipice, our young hero barely able to defend himself against the onslaught of the Dark Lord. With a surge of energy, our hero slashes his adversary's arm, bringing forth an inhuman howl. But his victory is short-lived. The Dark Lord drives him down to his knees at the edge of the seemingly bottomless pit, before neatly amputating his sword hand. After a scream of anguish, it's obvious to both of them that the Dark Lord has won, but he pauses before delivering the killing blow. Obi-Wan never told you what happened to your father. He told me enough. He told me you killed him. No, Luke. I had nothing to do with your father. I mean, seriously, in the entire universe, the odds that I would be the one to have killed your father is ridiculous. You grew up on a backwater planet where they farm for water. In the desert. Dude, I'm just messing with you. For real, I don't even know your last name. How important is it to integrate the PCs into your campaign plots? This is the third in a five-part series covering the campaign's adventure in the Temple of Borlane. This episode, Driven to Adventure. What is character, how to handle motivation, and how to integrate it into the game? This is Anatomy of a Campaign. Player characters are the most important thing in an RPG. Character creation is a pastime in and of itself, and not just for power gamers. How many characters have you created? How many have you ever actually played? In fiction, characters are the entry point for readers and audiences. The role and purpose of character is complicated. Henry James said, What is character but the determination of incident? What is incident but the illustration of character? Characters are everything. Think of your most beloved stories or franchises, and you are also thinking of some of the greatest characters in history. Attempts to utilize just the setting are often hit or miss, depending on the new characters. Think of the new Star Wars movies. Regardless of your own preferences, they're not as universally beloved as the originals. When they work, it's because the characters are working. When they don't, at the least, it's evidence that no matter how wondrous the Star Wars universe is, nothing compares to the power of Vader and Han, Leia and Luke. For authors, screenwriters, and playwrights, there are tools that help deliver at least balanced characters to their audience. Consider the hero's journey, derived from Hero of a Thousand Faces by Joseph Campbell. It maps key narrative waypoints based on how the main character moves along an heroic journey. We talk about how a character has changed over the course of events. The challenges they face in the beginning, while they are learning, become crucial as they face the greater challenges of their story's climax. Only because they have changed can they be victorious. This makes the story fulfilling for the audience. We're wired to enjoy stories this way. All the other characters, let's call them NPCs, are defined based on their relationship to the main character, serving to either help or hinder them at various points during the story. There are writing exercises galore if you're interested in building more robust and three-dimensional characters. When we don't like a story, we refer to the characters as flat, unbelievable, or boring. Characters begin a story wanting something, even if what they want is to stay at home and live the rest of their days in comfort with no wizards or adventurers. Thank you very much. And right here, 
precisely right here is the problem with all of this fictional toolset being applied to RPGs. The refusal of the call is a ubiquitous staple in fiction. It is mandatory. One of the greatest facets of a hero is that they do not want to be heroes most of the time. Luke had to stay and help his uncle on the farm. Otherwise, of course he'd go with Obi-Wan to Alderaan. Rick doesn't stick his neck out for nothing and no one. Tony Stark sells weapons to the military without a thought to using his gifts for good. Miles Morales is just a kid. He can't face the kingpin. The problem is twofold. First, no one wants to be farm boy Luke in your game. We want to be Luke all in black at the beginning of Return of the Jedi, or at least Luke blowing up the Death Star. Second, the DM is not the writer. They're just putting the call to adventure in front of you, and to be honest, we don't have the time or energy to convince you to heed the call. This dilemma swings pretty far in only one direction. The catalyst for many games strains credibility. The poster in the bar reads, Adventurers wanted to clear out goblin-infested mines, 50 gold. Luke can't even buy one power converter at Tashi Station for 50 gold. And so enter the player backstory. Why have you become an adventurer? Some of the classes in D&D natively address this. Paladins, I think rogues as well, have a built-in motivation. Everyone else needs to come up with one on their own. It's not hard, really, but the desire to build the reluctant adventurer is powerfully ingrained in our shared sense of story structure. At the beginning of the journey, the hero espouses some reluctance. One of the most fun parts is seeing them work through that reluctance. This reluctance is defining. There was a lot of this in my campaign in the beginning. We had a number of characters who were reluctant adventurers. Sure, we started in the middle of a chase on a deserted island, but quickly the differences in the character's approach to adventure became obvious. In a written story, those differences would be dramatic gold, but in an RPG, they became impediments. Ultimately, they strained the game in one very important way. Why would this group continue to adventure together? And that brings us back to motivation. Why does your character go on adventures, and why do they do so within this group? I've been using Star Wars examples quite a bit, and it's such a well-structured hero's journey that everyone knows. So we'll continue. Let's talk about Luke versus Han. Luke lost his family. Their charred skeletons were pretty graphically displayed. Thanks to the 70s, the decade of charred loved ones, iron monkey bars, and concrete playgrounds. Anyways, Luke lost his family and explains that there is nothing for him on Tatooine, so he wants to go with Obi-Wan and learn to be a Jedi like his father. Never mind what happened in the prequels. Yes, yes, he's too old to start the trading. I'm trying to make a point. Han's motivation is to pay off Jabba and stop the bounty hunters from hunting. These characters represent the duality of naivete versus cynicism as well. One is a farm boy who got his butt whooped by a sand person, while the other straight up murders Greedo and throws a coin on the table for the mess. Luke gets all excited when he can block the training ball blasts on board the Falcon, while Han draws about how he's been all over the place and he's never seen the Force and give me a trusty blaster over hokey religions any day, and how prescient he was. So Luke is on the adventure because he's latched on to a new father figure, Obi-Wan, and is too stupid to realize fighting the Empire is D-U-M. Han is on the adventure for the money, despite knowing how risky it is, because he's desperate and perhaps a bit cocksure. We see the disparity played out when the option to rescue the princess presents itself in Han box. It comes up again when it's time to blow up the Death Star. Luke goes from incompetent 
Sand people's bitch gets shoved around in the cantina, nearly drowned in sewage, etc., to crazy competent and sinking the torpedo where Galen Urso intended. I said, forget the prequels, I know, but Rogue One was awesome and this is my podcast. So that's Luke's character arc, and it's iconic. Han goes from looking out for number one to jumping back into the fight. He learns to surrender his cynicism for something bigger than himself. Or was he destroying evidence that his ship has ever been impounded by the Imperials on the Death Star, but figured he'd parlay that into a shot at the princess? Just saying. Okay, hang on a second. Here's my point. When designing motivation, having the end point in mind is more important than the starting point. Yeah, I know motivation and character arc are technically two different things, but really they are in service to one thing, character change. Back to D&D. So you make a halfling rogue, a really nasty piece of work. He wants gold because gold is power, but why? To what end? If you know what the arc will be, that the rogue will start out wanting to be the head of the thieves' guild, but ultimately be a hero willing to sacrifice themselves for a great good... Then you can design that from the beginning and things will fall into place much better. And by you, I mean the player, not the DM. It's good to get the DM on board, but this is firstly the player's decision. Let's call him Hugo. We'll start as a mercenary and head down the path of the assassin. But there is a spark in him. He remembers his mother and how good she was. He'll eventually reconnect with his roots among the river people. Honest, hard-working folk. And they will inspire him to walk a different path. The player cannot guarantee this will come to pass, neither can the DM. But having that map and knowing what you're at least aiming for in the beginning is powerful. For the DM, this gives them some great options. They know what will resonate with this player. Notice I didn't say character. They know the pressure points to hit, and it speaks to NPC factions they can include in their game. Psychologically, the player provides the beginning and possible end point The DM helps to anchor the starting point within the reality of the campaign, and they provide the conflict along the way which allows the player to make new choices, presumably navigating towards the end point. Dice and the whims of the creative process will most certainly alter that end point. The successful game is found within the striving towards the end. It's cliche but true. The journey is the point. In the campaign, the juggling of different character motivations is often a challenge. It's another place where RPGs vary from fiction. The DM is not the author. They don't create the main characters. Moreover, the characters are not even created with the party in mind in most cases. I know, Session Zero, I had one of those. But characters are created by the individual player and then vetted to make sure they don't clash versus designed by an author or writing team to serve a story. They're often not created through a lens of weakness, but what they are good at. When I was a kid, we all loved Han Solo, because he was cool. He was an amazing pilot, because he got the drop on Greedo. He had the coolest ship, the coolest co-pilot, the coolest gun. He chased down a squadron of stormtroopers, bluffing them to run away from him. Not one of my friends or I ever said we loved Han because he's selfish or that he uses a feigned overconfidence to compensate for feelings of inadequacy. Yet I am positive that the key to bringing him to life and making us love him were, in fact, those weaknesses. Most players are not steeped in character theory. 
And even those who are, are mere mortals who just want to be a badass, a genius. Someone who is the best at what they do, and what they do is not very nice. Everyone wants to be Mr. Black. I'm not condemning it. I do it when I play. The motivation to play an RPG like D&D is to be a hero. To do things you could never do in real life. It's the ultimate escape from the stress and disappointment of the daily grind. Rare and precious is that player who designs and plays their weakness as well. So the challenge is to make it work. To negotiate the varying playstyles, preferences, and expectations of three to six or more players. The game helps. Classes provide swim lanes and roles within the party. You need frontline combatants, healers, and casters. You need someone to deal with traps and arcane puzzles. As simple and obvious as it is, these roles become the basis for the team and the basis for the personalities in many cases. Of vital importance is to ask, why does your character adventure? The perhaps more important sub-answer is, why does your character adventure with these people? It's not really working in our campaign currently. That's hard for me to admit. It very much feels like a failure on my part. It's a big hairy wart in my warts and all philosophy for this podcast. Why do these people adventure together? Where this lack of cohesion comes into play is in two places. First, when the decision of what to do next is open-ended. And second, when a moral question of how to handle a situation comes up. In the middle of an agreed-upon quest, the next step is filtered through the lens of the quest, and so it works pretty well, although even then there is often second-guessing. However, when there is no immediate quest, the decision around what to do next is problematic. With the conclusion of the Temple at Borlane, we're about to walk back into that scenario hard. At the heart of the issue is that two players made mercenaries, and the others did not. Constantine and Bren are a criminal and a mercenary, respectively. Mir is a more fluid character. He has strong ties to the Fey and the Hags, but his demeanor allows him to function well within a criminal or purely for-profit endeavor. Voss's motivation was more about escaping the influence of her dark past, which ultimately means she's trying to be a better person. Calda was an effete noble. Calda died and was replaced by Jarrus the Bard, who is designed to be someone trying to transcend their criminal past. This lines up well with Voss, but the conflict between these dueling philosophies came to a head in the Oozing Temple. The only way to free Voss from the Oozing Temple was to sacrifice a sentient, blooded creature. That's code for person. From Voss's point of view, she would rather die than slip into that darkness again. A moment of weakness in accepting the power of Semyana to defeat the Black Puddings put her in this terrible position. Her own Kobayashi Maru, the no-win situation. It was a fascinating and dramatic situation. A fantastic story moment. Voss committed suicide rather than allow her life to be saved with the sacrifice of another. Jarrus backed her play. Mir tried to kill the sacrifice before she could kill herself. Constantine and Bren tried to get to her before she struck the killing blow. Every single one of them failed. Voss killed herself. Mir killed the sacrifice too late, and Jarrus failed to stop him. On one spectrum, we have cold practicality, personified by Constantine. Mir's pretty close to that side of things as well. On the other end 
lies idealism personified by Voss, who would rather kill herself than embrace the darkness. Jaris is supporting her. Bren seems somewhere in the middle, though leaning towards practicality pretty heavily, I think. He believes in honor, and he attempted to retrieve her body. In the end, he interred its care to Globogul, the intelligent gelatinous cube. So what's the problem? It's motivation. The characters and players have different motivational alignments, and they don't understand what the other side is trying to do. I think you could recast motivation as a win state. Motivation is a fuzzy term, but win state is a bit more defined. How do you define winning? The mercenary says that winning has two parameters. First, you must survive, and second, you must get the thing. The gold, the book, the whatever. In D&D combat, winning is really about surviving by killing the other thing. It's the ancestral genetics of D&D. Kill things and take their stuff. And while we're at it, what's losing? Losing, for the mercenary, is you're dead. If they fail to get the thing, but they live, then that's not losing. It's not really winning either, but they'll take that over dying any day. The idealist says winning is achieving the ideal. Defeating the villain, saving the villagers, being the hero. Most importantly, they can still win even if they're dead. In fact, winning by sacrificing yourself to achieve the great good? Oh, that's kind of perfect. I think unwittingly the players walked into a player versus player situation without realizing it because their win and lose states were diametrically opposed in that moment. PvP can work, but the players need to enter into it with eyes wide open, and in this particular case, they couldn't, because it wasn't obvious that this was a PvP situation. The mercenary side was looking to avoid their lose situation, death. The idealist side was looking to avoid their lose situation, which is really to betray their ideal. Dying was the only way to avoid that. So the mercenaries, Constantine, Bren, Mir, were looking to stop Voss from dying. Voss and Jarrus, the idealist in this situation, were looking to avoid betraying the ideal of pursuing the light. And the only way for them to do it was for Voss to die. I, too, did this by accident, mostly because I thought it would be dramatic. I didn't really foresee all of the consequences. I didn't think it all the way through, and the conundrum became a spike directly into the party's motivational schism. It's okay for dueling motivations to be present so long as the players agree that would be fun, and also so long as the motivations are not polar opposites. In their heart of hearts, they must be aligned on the objective. And in this case, they were not. Another version of this dilemma came up when they entered Borlane and were poisoned by the hidden cultists at the Golden Grain Inn. One side of the party has a different idea of the win and lose state of the encounter than the other. One wanted, maybe needed, to kill everyone. The other wanted to somehow remain undercover and be able to investigate the town each perceived the actions of their philosophically opposed teammates as radically dangerous. You can't investigate the town if you've killed a whole bunch of the town members, including the town sheriff. You can't kill everyone who's attempted to kill you if you're looking to just go stealthily back and be undercover in the town. 
On one side was anger at having been attacked, on the other was a desire to not fight the entire town. What helped was the mission. They compromised and retreated, coming back to infiltrate the temple under cover of darkness. With the conclusion of this adventure, we will be entering another crucible. There is no obvious next step for the group. They're going to have some downtime and then decide what to do next. It's another opportunity to get them on the same page, and I'm hopeful we can do exactly that, as you'll hear in this next segment. Let's talk about the living characters. Voss, our Asimir war sorcerer. In Taylor's own words, while she doesn't speak to the idealism I mentioned directly, I think you can hear it come through in her description of Voss. At her core, she's afraid of being vulnerable, she writes. Trusts no one but herself and chooses to hide her gift as much as possible. Trying to move away from the dark magic was like leaving a drug addiction. She goes on to say, Now that she's had this experience, I think she's learned to feel confidence in her gifts, and she's stepped into her power so that she can finally move away from the paradox that the choice between light and dark created. Her touchstones will be the Morrigan, truth, and forward momentum, not looking back. Now, in terms of what has changed for her, Taylor notes, she's been shaped the most by her experiences with Bren, oddly enough. He's shown surprising tenderness and kindness to her at times that have found their way to her cold, dark heart and have given her enough faith in another person that she might actually open up again. Referring to the events in the Oozing Temple, Taylor writes, Voss already felt betrayed by Constantine and Mir, which will be hard to overcome, but I think her resurrection experience will help them meet in the middle. And lastly, I asked the players what they would like to see happen next, and Taylor shared the following. My hope is to move away from my plotline a bit. I'd really love to get the book we've been pursuing, and then see what we can do with Constantine and Bren's story arcs. And that's a good segue to Bren, our half-arc warrior. Joe writes, What would, in real life, be a pretty significant weakness, say a guy is a bitter antisocial loner, is a character that I love in stories and games. Tough guy with a chip on his shoulder. I love those guys. They can do the right thing, but with an eye roll and a grumble. What's his weakness? Well, obviously the lack of meaningful relationships in his life, and maybe a little substance abuse too. That's just not a mechanical in-game weakness, and it seems like it would be tougher to get him to accept quests, even when it isn't. Joe goes on to say, Bren has a goal to recover his family's magic shield from some captain in the faithful of Simiana. He doesn't have a personal beef with the guy, he just wants to reclaim his family's legacy, and the guy is in the way. Sure, the faithful are jerks, but so are most people. Now, though, he's beginning to see the wider world and is starting to realize that much larger forces are in play. All this crap about the gods, maybe all that is real. And maybe, just maybe, the stuff he does can have some impact on the bigger picture. So you can see Joe is sort of plotting this change from purely mercenary to someone that is perhaps a little closer, at least, to the ideal end of the spectrum. In terms of what happens next, Joe's mulling over the following. How about Bren becomes the champion of death? He can multi-class, ultimately, into Paladin and serve the Morrigan. He's a pretty capable and unflinching death dealer. I think the Morrigan would like him. Some divine power under his belt would also help when he gets the shield and takes his place in the shields of Iona. 
Now, that last bit is a reference to an historical order of half-orcs who served a famous princess, all part of Bren's backstory. Acting on this, I gave Voss a clue that Bren's pursuit of the shield might be something her new patron, as a warlock, would support following her resurrection. Next up, Jarrus, Grayson's replacement character following Calda's death. And in Grayson's words, Jarrus is a lost, broken man trying to figure out his story. Jarrus isn't even who he is, just a persona built out of necessity. He observes everyone and tries to get their stories. He is driven by stories. Maybe it'll help him learn something of himself. He's hoping that by finding his father, he'll be able to better understand his place. He's seen a lot of violence and the darker side of the world in his search and is rather put off by a lot of it. It has its place and is sometimes necessary, but he wants to find ways around whenever possible. Hopefully you can hear in that how he plots over to the idealist side of the spectrum. In a game of violence, he's someone who's seeking nonviolent solutions. Grayson goes on to say, Right off the bat, he got more than he bargained for with this lot. The biggest shift that happened was almost instantaneous. He was doing everything for himself, using the party to get him out of the rootlands, and was then going to take the next opportunity to further his goals. When the events within the oozing temple went down, he quickly learned he was involved in something much larger and became instantly fascinated with Voss. He also quickly noticed the lack of party cohesion and has kind of taken it upon himself to try to gently bond them. Moving forward, Grayson writes, Jarrus wants to understand Voss and learn more of the Morrigan from Nakiri. He wants to clear the air with Constantine and feel him out, so to speak. Longer term, he intends to follow the party and hopes one day they'll help him find his father. Now, Mike was kind enough to record a monologue in character as the Dwarven Ranger and member of the Thieves' Guild, Constantine. Give a listen. I, Constantine, hail from the Underdark, deep within the mountain region near Tovenar. Prior to embarking to Outpost 9, I was Keeper of the Dark Eye, which essentially made me a courier for a Thieves' Guild, originally connected to the Drow, and a network of cities in the Underdark. I am quite large for dwarf, and apparently my thick accent and arms full of tattoos give me an intimidating demeanor. This is mostly misunderstanding, I think. I am like Big Teddy Bear. Except when I'm not. When I came to Outpost 9, I had crazy idea that I might run my own little crew. Not aimless adventurers or muscle for hire. At least, not all of the time but more of like well-rounded little team were capable of handling wide breadth of opportunities for the right price. My friends, this could be a very big opportunity, is what I like to say, and perhaps it is window into how I view world. What is in it for me? What can I gain? To be clear, I am not evil. I do not murder or plunder, but the dwarves, we are a near-extinct race, and the Underdark can be quite a brutal place. In our first adventure together, I had managed to recruit druid, a half-orc mercenary, young tiefling wizard, and uh, an Asimir sorcerer of sorts. It was quite an odd collection of people, and the, the wizard in particular was quite naive and green, but I thought that they had strong potential. 
at least the half-orc was reliable and good in fight, and that's at least a good start. We were the diverse team that I was hoping to create, and uh, after surviving Island together, I was optimistic that we could work as a team, and despite the fact that they had contemplated selling me out to the pirate captain Nupo. But who could blame them really in that circumstance? In the end, they did not, and that was a real true test of commitment and trust. My idea that we could be like merry little band of mercenaries was working quite nicely for a short time. We were off to a good start, but then came the Kraken, the Hags, the discovery of Clan Arcaden's outpost, and most significantly, the return of gods long gone. Perhaps there is something greater. Maybe there is still a chance for dwarves. There are many moments of me being me, but a few that I think stand out. When I decided to shoot the man that Castagari held captive in an attempt to prevent the ritual from being completed, I did not see this as big deal. I thought this was a logical thing to do, as it was clear he was going to die either way. Nevertheless, this apparently raised some eyebrows. And my willingness, perhaps even eagerness, to find someone for vows to sacrifice in order to escape the cavern. This is uh, simply a matter of survival in my mind. And most recently, letting Mir go when he was overcome by that intellect devourer critter. That was more of a tough one. But difficult decisions need to be made sometimes. I see these as examples of my core tenets. The things that make me tick. Do not hesitate to make difficult decisions. Protect your comrades. And stay on the mission. My discovery of Clan Arcade and Outpost along with Vaus's resurrection might be real turning points. A bona fide resurrection from a collection of bones? I still believe that the gods have no concern for the lives of dwarves and men. The Morgan resurrecting Vaus has everything to do with what the Morgan needs. I have no illusion that Vaus is nothing more than a tool, a disposable tool. However, what a powerful ally that might be. And the great... Dwarven kingdoms may be once again great. You can hear his practicality come through with every note in the monologue. Even when talking about the gods and the potential that they represent, it is couched within deep, deep cynicism. Bruce is working on creating Mir's replacement as of this recording. We'll cover more about that in a future podcast. Mir's impact on the campaign cannot be understated. Because of his backstory, we have some of the most interesting NPCs and NPC factions in the game, as well as some lingering threads to deal with. But more on that later. In preparation for this episode, I polled groups on the interwebs about the idea of integrating character story into their game. I can't call this scientific because the sample size of responses is far too small, but nonetheless, I saw some interesting results. First, I asked DMs how much they use backstories, ranging from not at all to being the primary basis for the campaign. By a very large margin, over half of DMs create the plot externally, meaning it's not about the players, but with a liberal use of player backstory to create side quests and flesh out the campaign. So it's something in the middle, 
but leaning more towards using external plots that the DM is creating. About a third of DMs primarily source their plots from PC backstories, though not exclusively. So again, kind of in the middle between these two extremes, in this case leaning heavily towards using internal PC motivations and backstories to be the primary story in the campaign. Two good points of note from DMs were, first, that the plot should be equally applicable to all the PCs. By sourcing it from one backstory, or even some of the PCs' backstories, that can leave out certain characters. Second, and related, I think, is the fear that the player might leave the game. Life happens, and what will become of your campaign if the player whose backstory you featured so prominently is gone? That happened to us when Calda died. No one cared about the Balnexicon. Not really. And it deflated some of the potency of the story. It was well summed up in this DM's polled comment I received. Weave something from the player's background in innocuous ways so they feel vested. But don't feel the need to have the whole campaign around the players, because the individual PCs come and go based on player availability or PC death. I also polled players separately, and this is where I heard some surprising responses. I asked how detailed the backstory of their favorite characters were, and how much they actually came up in play. Just under half said they were very detailed, and they came up in play often. Not shocking. However, about 40% said they had minimal backstory and their characters were fleshed out in play. I've heard this from some modern luminaries in the space, notably Matt Colville and Adam Coble, who echoed this idea of in-depth backstories at first level being silly. The characters haven't done anything yet, they're only first level. Come talk to me when you're fifth or higher. The last character I played extensively in love was a fighter in Grayson's campaign. He had a two-sentence backstory which got fleshed out a little in play. His greatness and why I loved him came from real moments in the game. This stood out to me because I usually write ridiculously long backstories for characters who end up doing nothing or whose backstory is all but ignored in the game. That's a frustrating experience. Conversely, one respondent to my player poll explained they hate it when DMs use their backstory. They see it as a sign of DM laziness, saying, think up your own NPCs instead of messing with mine. That kind of flabbergasted me, but I thought it was worth noting. Where I'm landing more and more is that A, there should be a character backstory that gets used by the DM. B, that backstory should be efficient, which is a kind way of saying short and useful. We don't need the Cimmerillion here, just the essentials. What makes them who they are and clarifies why they are an adventurer now and how they'll fit in this group. C. It has to be level appropriate. If you're building a first level character, they cannot have slain a dragon and led the armies of Rinaldo to victory at the Battle of the Demigods. D. DMs need to use the hooks the players give them, and for me, that also means working with them to refine those hooks so they make sense and so you're clear on any sacred cows you need to stay away from. Finally, E, work with the players to identify a character arc endpoint. Sure, the game will likely mess with this, but see if you can identify where they are trying to take their character story so you can help them get there. Never forget the PCs are the star of the show. If you as the DM have an amazing story to tell, go write a book. 
Next up is part four in this five-part series, Thunderdome, designing effective conflict in your game. This has been Anatomy of a Campaign. If you enjoyed this episode, consider subscribing, throwing us a review, or sharing with your other gamer friends. You can follow me on Twitter at AnatomyCamp. Thanks for listening.